Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of Out of the Question podcast. Now, today's question is, if not God's law, then whose? For seasoned listeners and those very familiar with Chalcedon, you will know that we're asking the question about a subject which we would call theonomy. So why would we bring up theonomy when it seems to be an obvious basis for Dr. Rushduni's writings and the Chalcedon Foundation? Well, it's because a lot of people enter into the discussion, the movement, and it's sort of like coming in a third of the way into the movie. They like the movie. It's very interesting, but they don't necessarily understand the basis. Another way to say it would be there's a series of books and there are seven, think like the Narnia series. And you don't read the first one. You come in on the third one. And it's not that you can't enjoy the story, but without a better foundation on the characters and on the setting, it's not as clear. So we thought we would delve into the subject of theonomy, what it is, why it's necessary, what happens when it's applied, what happens when it's not, not only for people who aren't familiar with it, but for people who are familiar with it and maybe struggle with how to communicate this idea to other people. So Charles, if not God's law, will there be no law or will there be somebody else's law? There will inevitably be some other law. And the nature of this question, the, the, the side question or the other aspect of the question about what is theonomy, I think is an important one because a lot of people don't really understand the term. It's been misunderstood. And like you referred to many of our seasoned listeners, they will be familiar with some of these unfortunate circumstances. If I can speak from my own personal experience, I recall, and I've, I think I've shared this before on some of the other podcasts, my first encounter with the term was an article that was written in Christianity Today magazine. It was a feature article. It was the cover story article. I think it was 1986 or 87. It asked a question about whether or not Christian reconstruction, which is another term we can talk about, is in fact heresy or something along that line. And um, I was fairly new to all of this stuff. And so I kept seeing this phrase pop up in the article, theonomy, and it had sort of a it has sort of a strange sound to it if you're if you've never heard the term before, but I had actually. And what I found most intriguing about it, and some of our listeners may or may not be aware of this, RJ Rushdooney was not the first religious scholar to use that term. I had encountered it when I was a, uh, a, a liberal philosophy major in college, and I was reading the works of the profoundly liberal Marxian Protestant theologian, Paul Tillich. He actually used it in his writings. And then I found out, of course, he, doesn't, he didn't mean by it what R.J. Rushdoony would mean by it, but more, even more centrally, uh, another man who used it at the same time, if not before Dr. Rushdoony, was Cornelius Van Til. And this gets to the heart of the question, because Dr. Van Til he made the statement, I think it's in his book, Christian Theistic Ethics, 
there are only two choices. It's either autonomy, man as a law unto himself, or theonomy, which I'm sure everybody knows by now means God's law. The profound insights of Dr. Rushduni, uh, such that he, he really pointed out the obvious, but until somebody points it out, people don't always realize it. Law is inescapable, and you will always inevitably be under some law order. And wherever you have authority, whether it be the potentate, the king, the village chief, the, the senate, the Caesar, the people of Rome, whatever it is, you will have a law order that you will be answerable to. So why do you suppose this is such a hard concept to get people to see? They get all bent out of shape that Christians want to impose God's law on everyone as if law truly, if it's coming from God and the Bible, and and a lot of these believers won't argue that God is sovereign and that he created everything. Why would it be such a hard thing to embrace that the creator of the universe would have immutable law? I think there are a number of ways to answer that question. Uh, The main answer would be because Christians have not been taught in their broadly evangelical churches, uh, the Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox, they have other issues regarding this, but we'll, we'll talk about the Protestant evangelical community. They've been largely taught that the law of God is something that applied to the Old Testament era, and they do this mainly because they embrace some form of dispensationalism where God divided history up into these dispensations, and there was a dispensation of law, but once that's gone, that's passed, that doesn't have any further uh, application. And so, when somebody points out the obvious, which is really the classic classic Protestant position, Luther had a little different idea, but in terms of the Reformed Protestant tradition, uh, there was a universal agreement about the centrality of God's law as the standard of living, and you can find this ensconced, for example, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, where I'll quote directly, where it says that God's law does forever bind man, and the moral law doth forever bind all as well as justified persons as others to the obedience thereof. Now, that was written in the mid-1600s, so this is not a new idea. Those men who put that statement together understood that when you say the, the law of God, and they, they meant in that particular case, as it's summarized in what we call the Ten Commandments, it has to be applied. It's not just something you stick on the wall and walk away from. It binds us, they said. So we are not talking about some revolutionary weird idea. It's just that, uh, I mean, who was it said, you know, in, in an age of uh, uh, falsehood, whoever speaks the truth sounds crazy. Right. Uh, and, and that's sort of where Dr. Rushdoony found himself in, in making these statements. So I, maybe I would disagree slightly that it's not a revolutionary idea. It's certainly a revolutionary idea to fallen man. Fallen man doesn't want to be told that he's not smart enough, good enough to make up a law order for himself. But I think it was Dennis Peacock who I first heard it, whether or not he originated it. He said, the Bible says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he said, notice it doesn't say 
this only applies to Christians, it applies to man. So if you look at Dr. Van Til's choices, autonomy or theonomy, it's obvious that if God can create and govern, that even if people disobey his law, they can't shield themselves from the consequences of their disobedience. Exactly. So that that part of it is built into how God interacts with the human race, which he created. Now, this gets to the issue of having a different law, a different law order than God's. And as Dr. Rastuni pointed out in more than a few places, when you find the source of law in any culture or society, you have found the God or the gods of that culture and that society. That too, I think is another, well, I'll use the term revolutionary idea in the context. Yes, people don't think that way, but it can take your breath away once you stop and realize exactly what was just said in that statement. If you're thinking clearly at all, you'll say, by golly, I think that's right. <laughs> you know, authority means the authority to proclaim law. And that is an attribute of divinity. Right. I tell, I tell my people that sometimes we say that, well, you know, the government thinks it's God. That doesn't mean we think the government can cast lightning bolts out of its fingertips. That's not a biblical concept. This is not what divinity looks like. Divinity looks like the authority to tax, the authority to establish law, the authority to say we have the power of life and death. Those are divine attributes. So if we go back to Genesis 3.5, Satan's premise was autonomy over theonomy, correct? Yes. Okay. So, so we, we take it, you know, fast forward from the Garden of Eden to 2021, and many people are feeling the oppressive nature of civil government in all levels, from the local to the county to the state to the country and even globally, and they balk against it. They don't like it, but when asked about an alternative, they're not really comfortable with theonomy and somehow or other equate it to Taliban or fundamentalist Islamic faith, and they sort of put Christianity on an equal footing with these other religions. And I'm talking about not God-haters, those who profess to love God. That is a part of the rebellious nature of fallen humanity. Uh, we prefer a different law order. Rebellious humanity does not like God's law because it calls him to account and it calls him to a standard of righteousness that doesn't glorify man. You know, Satan's temptation in the garden was to call into question the authority of God's law word. Did he really say this? You're not going to really die. You know, he doesn't want you to know this because it'll prevent you from being as wise and as smart and, and that sort of thing. So it was an appeal to human vanity and the desire, uh, the, the, the desire that would come as a result of the fall of man to be his own God. Now, I want to say something else, too, if, if I may, concerning this issue about why this seems so bizarre or objectionable to people. Now, I've given what I think is a, a one theological reason, because evangelical Christians are not taught the, the biblical position about the nature of authority. And this, as you pointed out, that, that very thing in the Garden of Eden, it was a choice between autonomy and theonomy. And that is, though, that um, what exactly people mean by the term? 
And I've thought about this. It's sort of like this. Okay, um, Andrea, you live in California. Let's say that you were traveling back east, east here. And somebody said, uh, well, where, do you, where are you from? And you said, well, I live in California. Oh, you're a Californian then. So I'm not sure what your gut reaction to that would be. Or you have an Italian background. Oh, you're an Italian. Oh, in my case. So you're, you're a Southerner. You know, I think some of these types of terms we would want to say, yes, but, you know, right. or qualify. Well, what do you mean by, oh, you're this or you're that? And I think this has been a serious issue with people misunderstanding and, and having some sort of uh, uh, upfront reaction in a maybe negative way. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. And I think that we who embrace and appreciate the writings of Dr. Rastuni need to recognize that as somebody once said, I, I don't know who said this, maybe you've heard this before too, that when people object to theonomy, they're not so much objecting to a theological doctrine as they are an attitude. Quite possibly because some people who present it present it with an attitude. That's right. So, and, and you know, uh, people uh, uh, rightfully get excited when they discover some truth that has been hidden from them or obscured because of false teaching, and they get, you know, really motivated and they, they really want to let everybody know. Uh, and maybe they haven't handled that, you know, in, in the proper sort of way. The, the point that I think. I would like to make about this is that it goes back to the very question. You, you can't escape this issue. And regardless of whoever had whatever attitude, you have to choose. You will be governed by some law. And if you take the Bible seriously, it's either God's law or some other, which is anti-God. Another way, I used to see this on a bumper sticker once in a while, it's God's law or chaos. Right. Because we, we are dealing with the consequences right now of decades, in, at least in American society, decades and centuries of rejection of God's law standard. And we're seeing the consequences of it. So you brought up chaos. And I would dare say that many who profess Christ thought it was enough to just kind of give a nod. Yes, I believe Jesus is God or I believe he died on the cross for my sins. But we talked about it a number of weeks ago when we said there are those who are admirers of Jesus and there are those who are followers of Jesus. So talking about chaos, that chaos is the basis for the theory of evolution, that out of chaos came order. Well, that's not the biblical story account of creation. Out of order came order. God was never a God of chaos. He isn't a God of chaos now, nor will he be in the future, right? So how many people are influenced by the milieu of evolutionary thinking on a biological sense, in a social sense, that they try to accommodate and they fall into the trap of oh, you're just so arrogant. You're just so judgmental. You think you have the right answers. And now they start becoming PR people for God because, oh, no, no, I don't want people to think that God is serious about the things he says. And it betrays the fact that aside from not knowing what they're talking about, they don't even know what they believe and why they believe it. And that's why this is perceived by especially those 
completely outside the boundaries of the Christian faith, it's perceived as a threat. Uh, it's perceived as, as something unacceptable because in an implicit way, they recognize this is a challenge to the humanistic law order. And they have the same objection. You mentioned, uh, I think a moment ago, um, the other religions and other traditions, for example, uh, the, the Taliban or, or Islamic law. It's interesting to me that among the people who object most strenuously to the Islamic law are humanists, secularists. Now, there's a lot to be objected to in Sharia law and Islam, but let's not make any mistake and realize that the, the, the opposition that's coming in many ways is coming from people who hate any kind of transcendent appeal to a higher deity over the state, over the government. And Islam is perceived as a threat because it's, it wants to say if, the gov if, if government in Islamic society is going to operate according to the standards of truth and righteousness, it must operate according to the Quran. And, by the, and the same thing in a Hindu society or a Buddhist society. It will operate according to that which it recognizes as the source of law. And I hope it's not just completely foreign to the average American that the source of their law is not the Bible anymore. It, at one time, it was. Most of the laws on the books, in, at least in the original 13 colonies, were based on Holy Scripture. That's why we had laws against things like sodomy and adultery and a whole host of other things that are clearly prohibited you know, by God's law, first and foremost. And when people want to say, well, let's try to make this make sense. I mean, they appeal to emotion. They appeal to putting yourself in someone else's position. How would you, for example, let's take the subject of abortion. The Bible clearly calls abortion murder or killing, depending on how it happens. Um, and, you know, so if, if a woman takes her own child's life, we would call that murder. If someone else injures a woman who wanted, we would call that killing the same way if you killed anyone else. So the Bible clearly recognizes the unborn as a person and a person whose life cannot be taken arbitrarily. And yet, when well-meaning people are trying to make an argument against it, they shy away from the law aspect of what's wrong with it, and they blame it on society, and there aren't, you know, there's poverty, and everybody doesn't have the same opportunity, and they move it away from the authoritative word of God. And I think without realizing it, people are more afraid of public opinion than they are of the triune God. Because maybe they've been told, no, 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 there's nothing to worry about God. He's gentle. He's not going to hurt you. You know, at the very end of your life, you can come back and go, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then all is forgiven. But they're more concerned with being looked down upon or even persecuted for things they say or believe. You know, I have um, been preaching through the book of Exodus at my church, and I have been blessed to uh, rely on the insights of Dr. Rastuni in that book, along with a number of other commentators. And he recently pointed out in one of the studies uh, this very thing, that in the case of Aaron, who, you know, gave in to the whims and the desires of the Israelites to form this golden bull calf, he was concerned about their opinions. He was more afraid of them than he was of God. And they weren't that concerned about their sinful activity, even though the Lord had already told them, you must not do this sort of thing. And why? Why would they not be concerned? Because 
they didn't take God seriously. They didn't take his law and his, his standards seriously. And this is where we find people today. It's not that they, they are lawless. It's that they're embracing another law that's leading to their own destruction, ultimately. Right. And that's a hard concept for some people to get. Oh, you're not lawless. You're just operating off a different law system. So if you're all in favor of multiculturalism and tolerating everything, even those things you find abhorrent, then you're a pretty good citizen under humanistic law. As soon as you object to that, then you become, as you put it earlier, a threat. Yeah, and I want to um, move our discussion back around toward the beginning because I want to put, put forth some things that someone had suggested some years ago. I think I actually had it as in, in the form of a little booklet that uh, speaks to several components of what generally are found in making up a theonomic worldview or position. And some people would hear this and say, okay, well, look, you, you haven't told us anything we don't know. Yes, we know the Westminster Confession says concerning the law of God, X, Y, and Z. You know, it, it's not those things that we all generally agree on, although, of course, there are some dispensationalists who do not accept the Ten Commandments as binding on people today uh, in any way, shape, or form. You know, it's how that's applied. So, in this statement that was put together by a fellow named Mark Duncan, he mentioned five, conveniently, five points that he said would be common among people who embrace, he used the term Christian reconstruction. We can get into those distinctions later if we need to. But he said, first of all, we will hold to a Calvinistic view of salvation, um, typically summarized in the five points of Calvinism. Well, that encompasses a whole lot of people. And then you will embrace covenant theology. That's the second component of it. That may embrace a few less, but generally people who consider themselves reformed have a view that the Bible is a covenant document and that there's a, a continuity in the covenant from beginning with Adam all the way to the coming of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. And then thirdly, it starts to get a little bit more precise, and that is the embracing of presuppositional apologetics. Uh, and this goes to the heart of the idea that there is no neutrality, God's word is supreme, and so if we are going to defend the Christian faith and explain it to people, uh, we don't start with the premise that people have neutral ideas, and if I can just appeal to your reason, then I can help you see, and you might come to No, no, no. You start with presupposing the absolute infallible Word of God. That's the starting point. Now, I want to digress just a moment here and say we are typically in this movement and this way of thinking identified with Cornelius Van Til, and that's fine. Uh, Dr. Van Til was certainly a very important person, but he was not the only presuppositional apologetics teacher. Another was Gordon Clark, who is not usually associated with theonomy, but I would invite anyone who would be so inclined to read his book on essays in ethics and politics. He has a chapter in that book where he, he deals with this issue on a number of places, but he has a chapter in that book called Calvinistic Ethics. And uh, I'm not saying that that would give him a free room in Vallecito somewhere, <laughs> but uh, it certainly places him within the boundaries as a presuppositional philosopher who understands the centrality of God's law. And then fourthly is the issue of eschatology, and that is we embrace a post-millennial eschatology. Well, there are people who would consider themselves, I guess, reconstructionists or theonomic in significant ways who aren't post-millennial, but that's a key component of it. But then the fifth point is the one we've been talking about, and that is theonomic ethics. And this is the, the big watershed uh, that we are dealing with 
in this discussion, and that is, okay, if, if it's a God's law-focused ethic that's to bind us individually as families, as a church, as so-called secular government, what does that look like? And how do we process that? And that's where the controversy has come in. And so as I'm dealing with people, I have a number of book clubs that are going on, and we're actually going through Dr. Rush Dooney's book, Lawn Liberty, because it's a good primer in terms of isolating the idea that you're not a blank slate. So, Charles, how would you explain to someone that everyone has presuppositions, but where do they learn their presuppositions? I mean, if you know, we all accept that the scripture says we're all born in sin. So is our original sin or our inherited sin a presuppositional sin? In other words, because we're fallen, we have this idea that we should be in charge because people would ask the question, okay, I get presuppositions, but how do people acquire them? I think Paul addresses this issue very clearly in Romans 1, uh, where he speaks of the unbeliever which is all of us, you know, we, un, until we publicly confess Christ and act on the electing sovereign grace of God, we are still considered unbelievers, that the unbeliever knows in his heart, in his frame, that there is a God. But in those classic words, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They hold it down. They hold it back. And that's the default position. That's the presupposition. We are front-loaded. You know, our hard drives are preloaded with this default idea that we know everything of our own opinion, and we don't need anybody to tell us anything. And part of being a parent and part of being a child growing up in a family is having to learn that, no, you don't know everything, and there is authority over you. That, that's sort of the first school is the family circumstance where people have to be taught, where children have to be taught that their initial inclinations are not going to be correct, and you have to be guided by something or someone. Now, the problem that we've been facing in our culture for many, many years and decades is that people used to understand that the family is the first church and the first state of a child, of a person. But gradually over time, and I don't think it's been by accident or random, it's been by design. Uh, the family has been corrupted and the family has been co-opted by the state primarily uh, to say, just give us your children. We will educate them for you. We will teach them for you. And if you need help, uh, we'll do that in the school. We'll do one even better. We'll do it by television. We'll do it by entertainment. Uh, but don't worry about this. We'll take care of that. And that's where we sort of are dealing with today. But the presuppositions are learned very early on within the family, in the culture, but it's that default position that we are born with. Somebody once put it this way, and I thought this was a, a very interesting and arresting way to put it, that at one time in a, even a nominally Christian society as we had here in these United States, there was sort of a collective consciousness where everybody sort of operated more or less from the standpoint of the Ten Commandments. I'm, I'm talking about times in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s. I know there was evil and degradation in those decades, but nothing quite like we see today. And so uh, generally, people would have an understanding of what being a good person meant. They would equate that with some obedience to the standards of God's law. And that was reinforced throughout the culture, however defectively 
there was sort of this collective consciousness that people were were hooked into. But see, now that collective consciousness has been completely disconnected from a, even a nominal Christian society and culture and plugged into one that is purely humanistic and evil. And interestingly enough, since nothing exists in a vacuum, if you're not going to have God's law, if you're not going to have God as the authority, the author of law, then someone else will come in. And we've seen it in the last year and a half. It's been the scientists, the medical people, the politicians saying, this is what you must do. And any opposition to it is treated as though you were being disobedient to the ultimate authority. And when I said earlier, more people are afraid of getting a knock on the door from the current administration as to have conversations about whether or not they got the shot in the arm than they are in terms of, am I in disobedience to God's law? And what would that look like? And please, oh, please tell me where I should go find that out. Instead, they have a fear for those who might be able to kill the body, but they don't have the fear of one who can deal with people's eternal destination. Yeah, your reference there to science um, is very pertinent. I, one of my all-time favorite uh, movies is the classic sci-fi film, The Day the Earth Stood Still, the 1951 version. Mm -hmm. And there's a scene in that movie where uh, the Michael Rennie character, Klaatu, is speaking to this very well-known, prominent Albert Einstein-like scientist. And he's trying to convince this man that he, he needs a platform to address all the people of the planet about the dire situation that we're in. And I won't go on all the details, but the, um, the guy who's the scientist, he he sympathizes with his mission uh, to come and warn the people of Earth about the dangers we're in. And he just says, you know, yes, I, I appreciate that, the fact that, that we scientists have a, a role to play here. And he says, too often, we scientists are misunderstood. People don't pay attention to us, you know. So uh, th there's been this sort of de facto of transference of authority and opinion uh, to the so-called scientist. It's not to downplay the importance of science, but science divorced from a proper worldview is going to lead to the place where we are now. And the, the early impetus of science, not to go off too far down this path, was largely biblical and Christian. It certainly was not humanistic as we have it today, where the idea is the influence of technology to try to completely change human beings into something called transhuman. There's a lot being talked about that today. Um, but Yes, it gets right back to what is the source of law? What is the voice of authority? There is inevitably, unavoidably, a voice of authority to which you will listen and to which you will be answerable. Exactly. And so if we play the game that somehow or other, it doesn't matter, you know, I'll just do what everybody else says, and we can trust the scientists, you know, as you put it, it used to be thinking God's thoughts after him. So how did we get air flight? How did we get airplanes? Well, man observed God's creation in terms of the animals that could fly. How did we get computers? Well, man observed how human beings process and think things. So all that we do is analogous anyway. There is nothing new under the sun, 
But when science or the scientific community decides that they can be in disobedience to God's law, what they do is they put themselves in direct warfare and all those who will follow them. So you want to know why we've got devastation on so many different levels. It's because man's at war with God and man isn't winning. God gave humanity this command at the beginning, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That was a mandate uh, to govern the earth in God's name. And again, we keep coming back to this original position. Dominion will inevitably take place, but it's either going to be dominion in God's name and according to his standards or according to some other God and some other standard. And we, we, we have seen thousands of examples throughout human history where dominion is pursued by some standard other than God's righteous law. And it can be, in some ways, remarkably productive. I mean, Roman law, compared to, say, just the whims of some barbarian pagan village potentate, might be better on some level. You know, that, and that was, that was the, the Romans' promise to people they conquered. Let us come in. We'll give you roads. We'll give you our legal system. We will help you out. But the bottom line was is that you will also obey us and do what we tell you and give us your money because we are God. And so inevitably, people will pursue this aspect of life. And science is one example of how that at one point was being done in a productive manner because the Lord has planted within us as being created in his image, this desire to be creative. But the problem is, as Paul addressed again in Romans 1, our moral will, our moral attitude is bent in the wrong direction at birth. And apart from the intervening grace of God by the power of his Holy Spirit, that's not going to change. But this is where the post-millennial part of this discussion comes in. We don't believe, in spite of what we see around us today, and I mean those of us who embrace this perspective about the authority of God's law and his word, that the future is something to be pessimistic about. Maybe in the short term, there's reason to be concerned, but God is not a loser, and Christ did not lose at Calvary. And the creation mandate given in Genesis chapter 1 was repeated in a major way by our Lord at the last chapter of Matthew, where he told the disciples to go and make the nations his disciples. That's another version of that same thing that God gave in the Garden of Eden. And when you make the nations Christ's disciples, that means then you give them a whole new worldview, you give them a new law order. And that making them disciples includes the understanding they can't do it by their own actions that the grace of God in the transmission of the Holy Spirit to people, that, that's the grace. So life is grace. Grace is life. But law is the condition on which the believer lives in grace. In other words, the changed person has no desire to dominate, but to take dominion. However better the Roman system was, it still was a system of domination. And to kind of go back to that, where do people learn it? Every single person born as a baby wants to dominate his or her environment. 
That's why babies cry when they don't get their way. Yeah, they might be wet, they might be hungry, but any mother who spent any amount of time with her child knows the difference between the I'm hurt cry and the I demand cry. And so the whole purpose of training children, the whole purpose in being educated into God's law being the standard is how we come to realize that our way won't bring us grace and blessing. Our way only brings us curses and judgment. So I think that the, the refrain that Dr. S. Juni uses a lot in Law and Liberty, the end of Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So, you know, you can fight, fight, fight. I'm not going to listen to God's law. I'm not going to follow God's law. But whatever you try to build, you will be laboring in vain. I'm glad you brought this up because this is another area that maybe we need to be more clear about. And definitely it's an area where people who hate God's law or they oppose a full-orbed understanding of Holy Scripture have misrepresented those of us who do appreciate that full-orbed understanding is that we have this idea of sort of a works righteousness or you're saved by obeying the law and all the rest of it, which is total nonsense. Certainly, R.J. Rastuni never, ever said anything like that. As a matter of fact, the man spent a huge amount of time continually telling people that the first move, the first point of a theonomic understanding is the individual Christian man or woman governing themselves according to God's law, according to these standards. It's self-government. That's the first basis. But you won't get around to that except for the grace of God. That's why, again, in that sort of five-point analysis, the first point is a Calvinistic soteriology, an understanding of the sovereign grace of God as that which moves on a person. God has chosen them before the foundation of the world. He extends his grace to them. They are saved, and at that point, they say, okay, now what? How am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to do now? And one of the divides that we see in uh, the, the churches, at least in these United States in the past 150 years, is that a lot of churches have not been able to answer that question of the person who's become saved. Or if they have answered it, they've said, oh, well, uh, your public school teacher will give you the answer about how you're supposed to live, or the governor of your state will tell you how to live, or that TV show you watch, that they will tell you how to live. And friends, look around. How has that worked? No, it hasn't. And again, you'll still rely on all these other means if you haven't had your eyes and ears opened by the grace of God. And so uh, a lot of people who I teach and I mentor are very concerned that they don't, they don't explain the Bible correctly, or they understand theonomy, but they don't think they do a good job. And they become very concerned that they turn people off and they're the reason someone doesn't become a Christian. And I love telling them that they're just not as powerful as they think. If you think you're powerful enough to prevent someone who God has chosen from becoming part of the family of God, then you don't understand God well enough. And you certainly don't understand yourself well enough because you're not that powerful. That said, the way in which we share this good news is by first explaining the bad news. You're hopelessly lost. You're not in a position to save yourself, nor is anyone else apart from 
the atonement of Jesus Christ. So whether or not that's understood by the listener, it needs to be stated because people have a progressive understanding of things. God starts intervening and coming into their life, but there's still a lot of fight. There's still a lot of, I, I, I don't like this. I, I'm sure there's going to be another way. And I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, I think God wants us to get to that point where we're absolutely sure we can't do it. And when we get to that point, then we become ready for redemption and to actually learn. That is a key factor in the process of sanctification. It's interesting, uh, again, in the confessional standards that I adhere to in the Westminster Confession and Catechisms, the theologians who crafted that document were very clear that justification is an act of God's free grace, but sanctification is a progressive work. It's something that starts at the point we become saved and our uh, becoming more Christ-like in our attitude, in our thoughts, and especially in our external behavior, which here again, we intersect with this whole idea of God's law. This is something we deeply struggle with, but we don't lose that battle ultimately because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And, and so there's a lot of comfort there, and the process of growing in your own faith, training your children. I, I know this is big with Christian parents, we somehow want to ensure that our children make it into the club. <laughs> well, we don't buy their ticket. This is a, an individual thing that has to happen in the Holy Spirit imposing himself on their life by God's election and choice. But I think a mistake that's made, and you hear it repeatedly, that Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. It's not that that's not true, but what we mean by relationships today often has more to do with Hallmark movies than it does having to do with <laughs> biblical relationships. So it's kind of like, you know, give and take. I give a little bit, God gives a little bit, and then we come up into this relationship as if we establish the relationship. Christianity is a religion. And in that regard, it's different than Buddhism, it's different than Judaism, it's different than Hinduism, it's different than Confucianism, and we could go on. That doesn't mean that an individual does not have an intimate and personal relationship with God, but when you make those two things opposites, it's just as wrong as making law and grace opposites. Now you're talking about something that isn't even real. You're debating an issue that the Bible never separates as opposing points of view. And that's why it's important when you start realizing there's a lot you don't know to go find teachers that have a philosophy of history, a philosophy of science, a philosophy of theology that are in line with Scripture. Yeah, what you're describing there is the problem which we have spoken of before on this podcast and which some of our other speakers and leaders, certainly R.J. Rastuni addressed it. I know Martin Salbretti has spoken to it, and that's the problem of pietism and the focus on inner spirituality uh, the, the, that relationship side of things. To quote the old Moody Blues song, it's a question of balance. And this is, begins to be the problem 
in a lot of Christian circles is that these things get out of balance. And so that too is a part of our sanctification. None of us wants to have an imbalanced Christian life, but because of our fallen nature and the corruption of the world, sometimes these things can happen. And by God's grace, he raises up teachers, he raises up people in our lives to call us back. Okay, maybe you are being a little bit too focused on things and and you aren't uh, emphasizing your personal relationship with Jesus. However, that needs to be corrected. That doesn't mean you go like a, you know, off a slingshot in another direction and create a much larger problem. The Lord has given us in his word and in the teachings of scripture and the teachings of great writers like R.J. Rastuni, Cornelius Van Til, and others, words of wisdom by which we can learn more how to live that balanced Christian life. And maybe as we uh, move toward uh, wrapping up this session, uh, I could recommend, I, I know if you go to the Chalcedon website and do the resources tab and search the word theonomy, I think the first thing it pulls up is a very short two or three minute video of Mark Rastuni answering that question, what theonomy is. And uh, certainly there are other audios and, and videos that can be accessed in that way as well. And any other question you have, one of the ways that when we designed, and I should say are designing because we're always trying to improve it, the website is to make our resources available to people, whether they're books or articles or lectures or videos. Take the item or the, the, the term that you most don't understand or say, how would I explain this better? That you think you understand it, but you don't have the words on how to formulate it. That's how I direct people. Go and, and start learning at your pace with what it is you find at this point pressing. And I can tell you that people who do that, I see such growth that when they first came into my life as someone who wanted to be mentored, I would constantly hear them say, well, I don't know very much. I don't know very much. You know more than I do. It doesn't take very long, Charles, for them to know as much as I do in the area because we all are accessing the same material and ultimately going back to scripture, that that's how you grow. You grow by answering the questions that come up to you as opposed to something that you don't struggle with. Some people don't struggle with eschatology. Other people don't struggle with looking at every area of life being subject to scripture. Well, instead of trying to say, well, that has to be your problem, let people explore it. Absolutely correct. And uh, I hope that our listeners have gained some insight in this question, even though people might have thought at first, well, I already know the answer to that question, but let's put it out there again as we wind up things. If you are not obeying God's law, if the standard of God's law word is not the standard of your life, then what is? Thank you, listeners, for joining us. We appreciate the feedback that we get. And as always, you can contact us through out of the question podcast at gmail.com. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.